tonight we are talking about evangelism, but just by way of introduction, um, I will tell you a bit of my story. So I was a church kid. My dad was an elder in a Baptist church, and um, I went to church twice on a Sunday, um, but I was quietly sceptical about all things Christian. I had my internal kind of doubts about whether it was really true, but I also thought that Christianity was really, really lame and embarrassing, and I didn't want to be associated with it. And I remember um, being like in RE lessons at school, where they'd say, please put up, oh, who here goes to church? Put up your hand. And I would go bright red, and I would, I'd either put up my hand and go bright red and feel really embarrassed, or I wouldn't part of my hand and go bright red and feel really bad. I didn't even own up to the fact that I went to church. And um, I, so I had these two problems with Christianity. One was I genuinely didn't think it was true. I sort of had my doubts. But I also thought it was really embarrassing. And then I remember my parents took me to a camp when I was a teenager where there was a guy speaking on the evidence for Christianity. And he was actually a guy called Mark Trevon, who was the son of the first Doctor Who, just for a bit of trivia for you. And he did a series of talks on the evidence for Christianity. And I remember thinking it was, a, I mean, they were really good talks. I was really interested in what he was saying. But I remember getting into the end of this week kind of annoyed because I thought, Christianity is actually true. This is terrible, because it's still really embarrassing. So I decided that even though I knew that it was true, I did not want to be a Christian. And I had kind of like a year, really, of like living a double life, where I actually knew that Christianity was true, but I had made a very clear decision that I was not going to become a Christian. It was pretty painful. I remember sitting through church services. It didn't matter how good the preaching, how bad the preaching was, I would still feel convicted at the end, like I needed to respond. Um, I remember worship times were always terrible because I'd, the words would always get to me and I'd want to sing. And then I was like, no, oh, I can't sing. I'm not a Christian. It was very awkward. And then things really came to a head when my brother got baptized because I thought, oh, this is terrible. This means he's a Christian now, and this means I've got to think about it again. And I remember God really getting to me at his baptism service. It, we went to a Baptist church where this wasn't very normal. I started to shake, and it wasn't a kind of Baptist church where people did that. And I thought, what was wrong with me? I remember holding this hymn sheet that I was sharing with my brother's non-Christian friend, and he had to take it from me because he couldn't read the words anymore. I was shaking so much, and I was like, this is so embarrassing. Like, what's wrong with me? I've got to get out of here. And I, so I ran out of the, um, I, well, I managed to get out of that service, and I remember thinking, phew, I'm still not a Christian. Now, the next day, they had a praise party in someone's garden in the afternoon, and it was terrible, because the worship was really good. So I was, I was dying, and the songs were really getting to me, and I was resisting, and bear in mind I've been doing this for about a year, and then we sung this song, and I've never really sung the, song, the words of this song, like, I don't think in any other church, but these are the words of the song. I don't know why, I can't see how, your precious blood could cleanse me now, when all this time I've lived a lie, with no excuse, no alibi. All I know is I find mercy, all my shame you take from me, all I know, your cross has power, and the blood you shed cleanses me. And it was like that song was like the final wound, and I went home and I didn't pray the prayer that you're meant to pray at the end of the Why Jesus booklet by Nicky Gumbel. I just went home and I said something like, Lord, I give it. I'm just done trying not to be a Christian, so I'm going to become a Christian. And what was interesting for me is quite quickly I went from being really embarrassed of Christianity and 
really unconvinced about it being true to being really convinced it was true and really keen on everyone else becoming a Christian. And throughout my life, I've had various kind of experiences that have been very, have made a really big impact on me in terms of evangelism. Um, and one of the most memorable is I was asked by Steph Liston to speak to a group of leaders on the subject of evangelism uh, a couple of years ago. And I was feeling like a bit of a fraud because I hadn't really told anyone about Jesus for quite a while. So that morning, in my prayer time, I said something like this. Lord, I'm speaking to a group of leaders about evangelism tonight, but I'm feeling like a bit of a fraud. It would be really helpful if you could line up for me that I speak to someone about you today and do some evangelism so that when I speak about evangelism, I don't feel so bad. That'd be great. So then, I went to a, later that day, I went to a cafe, which I often do, and I took a, it's like a greasy spoon in actual bread, like a really good one where they do fried bread, if you know what I mean. And I went there and I took my Bible and I took a pen and I decided I was, I was going to sit down um, and do a bit of study. And there was one other person in the kind of area of the cafe that I was in, and it was a, it was a lady in the corner. And as, as soon as I went in, I felt the Holy Spirit say, there you go. And I said something like, Lord, I'm not feeling it today. I've changed my mind. So I sat down and I read my Bible. Now, the Bible is not a safe place to hide when you're resisting the promptings of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so after an hour of agony, I finally shut my Bible and I said something like, Lord, all right then, I'll do it. I'll speak to her, but what do I say? And I felt God say, just say hello. And I thought, oh, I can do that. So I looked up from my Bible and I caught the attention of this lady in the corner of the room. Um, she was sort of in her twenties, and I said, "Hello." And she said, "Hello, is that a Bible? Are you a Christian?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "I've never met a Christian before." And I said, "You've never met a Christian before?" She said, "No." At school, no one was, that I ever knew was a Christian. At work, since I've been at work, I've never known anyone who's a Christian, and none of my family are Christian, none of my friends are Christians. Maybe if I'd met a Christian, I'd be a Christian. Right, okay. <laughs> so then I said, well, like, so do you know much about what Christianity is all about? She said, no, but I'd love to know. I was like, right, so do you want to... Do you want to like, join me at my table and I can give you a bit of an overview? Yeah, that'd be great. So I said, well, and then she came and sat at my table and I said, well, should I just start at the beginning then? Yeah, do that. So I did for about an hour. We talked about the gospel. And one, at one point I was convinced that I thought, hang on a minute, she needs to know. I knew she was going to run off to catch her bus at some point. And she needed to know before she went that the church is actually a safe place for people who are not yet Christians, and that loads of people who go to church aren't yet Christians. So I said that to her. I said, look, you need to know church is a safe place for you um, and a great place to go because there's loads of people there who are not yet Christians yet. They're just finding out what they believe. And I said to her, in fact, actually, there's someone in my church who's the same age as you, and he said to me last week that he's 40% a Christian. And she went, oh, 40%. Well, before I met you, I was 0% but now I'm at least 5%, maybe 10%. And you know, that experience taught me, made me think, I wonder how many people are there like her in our nation today? Probably a lot more than we think. And I don't want to talk to you today about why, because I think, I think you probably know that. I mean, there are more reasons than you think 
biblically to share the gospel. Um, there is a session I do on 11 reasons on why we should share our faith. And almost every time I do it, people say at least two of those I've never heard of before. So it is good to think about that question before you dive into evangelism. But that's not my job today, um, because that's not what the seminar information says. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about how. Um, before we dive in, what is evangelism? Well, here's a really highly controversial definition. Proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's evangelism. It's telling people the good news about Jesus. If you look at if you look it up actually in any Bible dictionary, that's what it tells you. That's what the word means. Proclaim the gospel, which means that it is a distinct activity from social action and from good works. Although there is a clear relationship between the two things, um, evangelism therefore requires words. You're not telling someone the gospel until you're actually telling them the gospel. But we are going to talk about a lot of things that aren't showing the gospel that are kind of like pre-evangelism. A lot of people use the word mission to cover it all, but I think it is helpful to realise what evangelism is um, and be clear about that. So my seminar today has three parts. If you're taking notes, you're going to love it because it's loads of points. Okay? The first section is nine observations about evangelism from the book of Acts. The second section is going to be seven biblical principles for everyday evangelism. And the, the last section will be five unique opportunities we have in the modern age. Okay? So, nine observations about evangelism in the book of Acts, seven biblical principles for everyday evangelism, and five unique opportunities we have in the modern age. Okay, you ready? Steady? Let's go. Okay, nine observations about evangelism in the book of Acts. Now, I count that there are 37 instances of evangelism described in the book of Acts. Now, we value, don't we, being New Testament patterned churches. So for us, this is not just kind of interesting history about the early church, but we should expect that these will be instructive. And so I'm going to give you nine observations that I would make, about, that I've made of these 37 instances of evangelism, and I will apply them as we go along. I mean, they're all quite, some of, them are, some of them sound pretty obvious, but it's quite important to just say them all so that we've got a clear basis from which we build. I don't want us to rush into practice before we've just made some biblical observations. So, number one, they went to the people. In a number of cases, the believers, all the apostles, go to where people are with the clear intention of sharing the gospel. So they go to the synagogue in Acts 12, 13, 14, and 17. They go to the place of prayer in Acts 16. They go from home to home in Acts 5. And they go to the marketplace in Acts 17. They went to the people. Not all the evangelism in the book of Acts was come and hear. A large amount of it was go and tell. They went to where the people are and they told them the good news about Jesus Christ. And so for us, we need to keep finding ways, the application here is simple, we need to keep finding ways of taking the message of the gospel to where people actually are, not always expecting them to come to us to hear the gospel message. So one of the things we do in our church is every Friday night, we go out and we give out hot chocolate to young people on the streets of our town. It's not very complicated, and it's not very hard to start an evangelistic conversation with somebody who's a teenager. So last Friday I was doing it, and we went to we went on the streets, we took hot chocolate to young people, and the first young people I gave a hot chocolate to, I said, here's a hot chocolate, it's from Jesus. Boom. You're straight away in there, what? Why are you giving this? What do you mean from Jesus? Straight away, we had about an hour of talking to them about who Jesus was. 
Um, later in the evening, we went and sat down with a group of girls, and we gave them, um, me and another lady on the team, we, went, we sat with these girls and we gave them hot chocolates, and they said, why are you doing this? And we said, well, because we believe that God loves all people, we want to express that love. That was enough to just get us in there, and we talked to them for almost two hours about who Jesus is, um, what the gospel is, and listen to them about their lives. So we go to where, they went to where the people are, observation number one about evangelism acts. Observation number two, the people sometimes came to them. So in a number of instances, unbelievers seek them out and invite them to come and speak. So this happens in Acts 17, it happens in Acts 24. On other occasions, a crowd actually kind of gathers around the disciples. This happens in Acts 3. And so one of the things that I think it's important for us to do is just to sometimes say, Lord, I'm available. Lord, I'm available to... You can send me people. Does God know that you're actually available to tell people about the gospel? Does he know that? Does he know that he could trust you? Does he know that he could send someone to you and you would patiently explain to them the good news about Jesus Christ? Sometimes the reason we don't get sent anyone is because we're not available. And it's one of the things that we pray for as a church, and sometimes we get people that come to our building and need the toilet, and then we give them a coffee, and then we, they, they ask us about who we are, and we tell them about Jesus. It's not, it's not actually that unusual. It's not as unusual as you think for God to send people into your path, but are we available? So the people came to them. Third observation, the apostles had an important role. Acts focuses on the story of the apostles, so it's not a surprise that 29 out of the 37 instances of evangelism involved them. They clearly pioneer evangelistic advance in a number of areas. Application is quite simple. There's clearly biblical precedent for key leaders taking, taking forward evangelistic advance. You know, there's, there's a place for anointed people with the gift of evangelism, and apostles too, it's part of their job, to proclaim the gospel. Um, but observation number four is the counterbalance to this. The other believers also have an important role. Now, Acts 8, verse 4 is a very important scripture because it reveals to us that the gospel first spread out of Jerusalem and into the other areas, not because of the apostles, but because the scattered believers were sharing the good news. So perse- persecution broke out in Jerusalem. The apostles stayed, but Acts, Acts 8, verse 4 says that the believers spread the good news wherever they went. So it's this extraordinary description of the ordinary people, not the apostles, not the evangelists, wherever they went, telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. Here, what we find is that the apostles are actually running to catch up with what has happened. And they end up going to places where there's already groups of believers where they haven't sent someone, but it's just the ordinary believers just evangelizing. So clearly there's an encouragement for things like everyone a witness here, based on Acts verse 4. Um, that there's a, there's a place for encouraging all believers to share the good news. Um, observation number five, signs and wonders played an important supporting role. A number of evangelistic opportunities actually come about because of an extraordinary healing or because afterwards there's some kind of sign or wonder. Um, so in Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 6 and Acts 14, um, we see that Signs of Wonders played an important supporting role in the evangelism. And the last chapter of Acts ends, you know, like some people think, oh, it sort of fizzled out by the end of Acts, but that's not what happens at all. The narrative ends with the whole island of Malta being healed. It's an extraordinary healing of everyone flocking um, to Paul. So 
the, the application for this is quite simple, that signs and wonders for us should play an important supporting role in our evangelism. So I, I actually remember going to this same cafe with a pile of books once about healing, ironically. And this day I, I wasn't very available. I didn't think I'd said to God, please send me anyone, because I was quite, really quite keen on doing my reading. But the only table that was available to me was a rather large one, which meant that other people had to sit on my table. And these three ladies sat at the end of my table and I knew they wanted to talk to me. So I put down my book and I said hi, and they asked me what I was doing and I explained. And then one of them said, I could never believe, I can't believe in anything that I can't see with it, that, that I can't see with my eyes. And I said, okay, well, let me just test that. Like, if you were walking home tonight, surrounded by a bright, white, shining light, and heard a voice saying, this is God, believe in me, would you believe in God then? She was like, yeah. And I said, so if one of you had come here today and you were sick, and I prayed for you and you got healed, would you believe then? She didn't have a chance to answer because the other person, one of her other friends said, well, you can pray for me, boy. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I said, um, well, I did what you meant to, well, what Mike Betts and Angela Kemp say we should do, which is you ask people how much pain you're in out of 10. So I said, right, how much pain you're in out of 10? She said, 10. She started to look quite emotional at this point. And I was like, well, that's, that's a lot of pain. And I said, well, can I hold your hand and can I pray for you and command this pain to go? And she was, she nodded. So in the middle of this cafe, by this point, it had gone quite quiet, I'll be honest, because everyone was aware that something was going down on the table over here. So I grabbed this woman's hand, and I said, in front of the whole cafe, in the name of Jesus, be healed. She went really quiet, and then she said, it's gone. I said, what do you mean it's gone? It's a pain. It's gone. And I said, well, how much pain are you in then? On a scale of zero to ten. She was like, zero. I was like, really? <laughs> zero? Zero. Wow. And then the other one on the other side said, well, you can pray for me as well. So I ended up praying for her. She experienced some kind of healing, but it was a different thing. And then eventually I turned to the other lady and I said, well, there you are. <laughs> she, went, she looked a bit shocked at this point, like she'd gotten more than she'd sort of wanted. <laughs> and I said to her, well, you know, there's a story in the Bible, I don't know if you've heard of it, of the ten lepers, and she hadn't heard of it. And I said, well, there, there were ten people that Jesus healed of leprosy, but only one of them came back to thank him. Jesus is very generous. He heals people generously, regardless of whether they thank him or come back to say thank you to him. Now, I believe that Jesus Christ has healed you today. You've got a choice. You can thank him or you can go about your way like the other night. It's up to you. Healing plays an important role. I remember once going to, um, doing the Friday night thing that we do, we go hot chocolate, and there was this guy who was, he'd read, basically read this book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You've probably heard, some of you probably heard of it. Well, anyway, he'd read this book, and he decided that he was a convinced atheist because of this one book that he'd read. And he wanted to tell me why he was an atheist. So we, we, he'd been booked in to meet to chat with me the next week because someone else at the team said, oh, we need to speak to Rob next week when he's here. So I went to speak to him, and he said, well, he basically explained to me, he took about sort of 10 minutes or so to explain to me all the reasons why he wasn't an atheist, and they were really just taken out of the book. So I thought, well, I'll just say a few, just a few things, really, to respond to what he's saying. And I could see that as soon as I started to speak, that he'd never heard the other side of the argument. It was like his brain was whirring and going, oh. And I was just, just saying a few things, and I thought, okay, this guy's not a very good atheist. <laughs> and, 
And then I said, are you open-minded? And I did the same thing that I did um, with the other lady. I mean, you'll notice that I do repeat myself when I do evangelism. There's a few things that I just say, and I know easy ways of starting conversations. So I said, if you were surrounded by a bright white shining light, would you believe in God? And he said, yeah. And I said, if you'd come here tonight and you were sick and I prayed for you and you're healed, would you believe in God then? To which he replied, well, there is something you can pray for me about. At this point, I thought, he's a really terrible atheist because he just asked me to pray for him after 15 minutes of a conversation. <laughs> so it wasn't a very firm atheism. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? And he said, I have anxiety and panic attacks. I'm taking medication. I'm seeing a counselor. We ha I had a bereavement in my life recently. Um, I lost someone. And ever since then, I've just been not well at all. And I said, okay, well, I'll pray for you. So I prayed for him. And as I prayed for him, well, when he opened his eyes, I thought, something's happened to you. He looked slightly different and also slightly spooked. And I said, did something happen to you when I prayed? And he said, yeah, while you were speaking, I just felt this love. I just felt this love inside me. I said, can I tell you what I think that is? And he went, yeah, I think, I think that's God. I think that's God showing you he loves you and showing you the love that could be yours if you were his. So does that make sense? He nodded. We gave him a few books and we sent them away. Three months later, he came on our alpha course with eight friends. Oh, yeah. Just turned around the blue and he brought eight of his friends. And at the end of the alpha course, I finally asked him, what happened that night when I prayed with you? Do you still have panic attacks? He said, I've never had a panic attack since. I've never had taken any medication since. And I've never seen a counsellor since. And I was like, oh, okay. Sort of makes sense why you might come back. <laughs> so signs, signs of wonders play an important supporting role in evangelism. Number six, interesting one. Persecution played an important role. It was persecution that made the disciples leave Jerusalem. It was persecution that took Paul before various rulers and courts where he was able to share the gospel with all these unusual different people. And Paul himself, in Philippians 1 verse 12, referring to his persecution and arrest, says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So that's just an important touch point. Like, persecution was actually one of the means through which the gospel spread. It forced the disciples out from Jerusalem and meant that the gospel spread to all these crazy different places. Point number seven. Um, sometimes people responded quickly. There are a number of examples in Acts of immediate gospel responses and immediate baptisms. So we see this in Acts 8, in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 16, but there are more examples than that. Um, and we find this today, don't we? Do we not? Some people, they just seem to be ready. And it's not that they usually know nothing. It's normally that God's been doing quite a lot beforehand. And then when you come to share the gospel with them, you find they're right, they're ready, that they're ready to respond. Um, we have regularly done throughout the years street work in our church. We've just gone around telling people about Jesus in our town square. There was one guy who I think two or three people in our church had had one-to-one -one conversations with on the street. After the third conversation, he came to our church. At our church, he just experienced the love of Jesus. He started crying. We asked him what, what was wrong, and he said, I just feel Jesus everywhere. And we, my wife was with him at that time. She explained the gospel to him and I said, would you like to respond? And he there and then prayed a prayer of response. And ever since then, he's come to our church, read, been discipled, and just hungry. So sometimes people respond quickly. 
Sometimes God just goes zap, and you can't explain it. It breaks some of your rules, but God just does whatever he wants to do. Other times, but observation number eight, sometimes people in Acts responded slowly. While Paul spent days in some places sharing the gospel, he spent two years debating in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Acts 18. And note, it's quite interesting, the Bereans in Acts 17, they seem a bit cautious, so they're going back every day to check what he's saying in, in the Bible and, and testing it. And there's this kind of process of weighing up what he's saying. They're not, they're not quick off the mark to respond. Now, I think we can all relate to this. There are some people that respond slowly. So we've got a number of people in our church who like do about three alphas before they start coming to church or they just do I mean we've got one guy in our church in fact I got a text last week from someone that's done three alpha courses with us and two one-to-one discipleship courses plus loads of other coffees and random other things with people in our church and he's now said I'm definitely going to want to follow Jesus Christ and I'd like to be baptised and that process has been over about three years and he's gone like this all over the place and we just patiently kept explaining to him who Jesus is and teaching him what the Bible says We've got another lady in our church called Claire. Her daughter, Erin, is in our church. And um, Erin invited and um, gave her, when we were doing this thing called Who Cares? Has anyone heard of Who Cares? Yeah, so we, we were giving out these cards and she answered the question, what hurts the most, and wrote loneliness. She gave it back to her daughter. And then her daughter came back to her with what we were doing to kind of respond to the issues that people had written on their cards. And she basically decided to come to what we were putting on to respond to what she'd written. And she came to our sermon series, and she came to our Alpha course, and she did not respond to the gospel, but she came to church from thereafter pretty much every week. And she asked question after question of her daughter and other people in our church. And after about three years, we started to get a bit suspicious that maybe she'd become a Christian because she was looking like somebody who was enjoying the worship a bit too much, (laughs) somebody who doesn't actually love Jesus. So I eventually sat down with her, and I said to her, Claire, you look like you're enjoying the worship a bit too much for somebody who doesn't love Jesus. Where are you at with all? And she said, she started to cry, and she said, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when I worship, I feel flooded with joy. And I said, Claire, how long have you been a Christian? And she said, two weeks. So sometimes people respond slowly. It was true then, and it's true. Now, observation number nine from the book of Acts Church planting was a central part of the Apostles' evangelistic strategy. Um, This reminds us that evangelism is one spiritual gift. It's often interconnected, well it is interconnected to all the other spiritual gifts. And evangelism is often the start that leads to the needs for the other gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit. And you need a whole church really to make a disciple. after conversion, somebody needs teaching, pastoral care, serving, prayer, and practical support. Also, some people need that all before they actually respond to the gospel as well. So evangelism is a little bit like often the thin ed- edge of the wedge behind which all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit follow. That's why we need to church plant, because only in church communities can we actually provide the context in which people can become mature in Jesus Christ. Um, if you just try and make converts, it's a different thing. So church planting was a central part of their strategy. So there we are. I just wanted to lay those foundations. None of it's very controversial, just nine observations when we actually look at the 37 descriptions of baptism in the book of Acts. 
Now, I want to talk about six biblical principles for sharing your faith. Number one, enjoy the gospel and Jesus for yourself. Now, when you enjoy something or are amazed by something, you can't stop talking about it. I'm an evangelist for films that I really like. A few years ago, I saw the film Interstellar, and I thought it was like the best film ever. Now, not everyone agrees with me, I'll be honest, but I just went around telling people about it. I'm pretty sure I randomly told someone on a bus about Interstellar, because I just love it. I just think it's the best film ever. And I did not get paid commission to do that. No one told me to promote the film Interstellar. When you really like something, you can't help talking about it. It's too, too important to who you are. If anyone to even truly know you, it just bubbles out of you because you're excited. Now, notice the kind of energy that we see in Andrew, um, the disciple, when he meets Jesus Christ. It says in John 1, verse 41, the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. There's this kind of energy. He's seen something in Jesus. He rushes home. He gets his brother. You found him. You've got to come. Now, I don't think he was given any training on how to do evangelism. Andrew was just excited about who Jesus was, and he couldn't keep it to himself. Telling other people about Jesus has to start by being amazed at him for yourself. I discovered when I was a teenager the sheer joy and delight of praising Jesus. I would put on a worship CD in my room. I shut the door and I'd put my hands in the air and I'd mouth along to the words because I didn't want my parents to hear me worshipping in the evening. And I experienced in my bedroom a delight and a joy in Jesus that I knew when I experienced it, this is better than anything else ever. You just know when you've experienced that, you know this is better than anything I could experience and this is better than anything I have experienced. And then in that very same moment of experiencing the joy of knowing that Jesus loved me, that I'm a child of my Father in heaven, and all that he's done on the cross for me, I suddenly thought, my friends don't know this joy. They don't know this peace. They don't know this wonder that I'm experiencing right now. I've got to tell them. So it's simple, we share Jesus because we actually think he's great. It all starts with enjoying him for yourself and knowing his love for you. Rick Warren said, this is the starting point of every ministry, to feel loved by God, not to know it, but to feel it. This is the starting point of every renewal, every great awakening, and every revival. A miserable Christian really is a terrible evangelist. I mean, if you've ever met one, have you ever, I mean, it's, they're not that many, but when you meet them, it's not good. Miserable Christians who do evangelism, because they feel they should. It has to start, really, fruitful evangelism has to start with actually enjoying Jesus for yourself. Second point on biblical foundations for personal evangelism, number two, love the people in front of you. Um, notice that we're, quite a lot of this is actually pre-evangelism, but it's quite important stuff when we actually get to the good stuff. So, number two, love the people in front of you. Your life is the best recommendation for the Christian faith. When people become Christians, they should be more loving sons to their parents, better spouses, more diligent employees. It's not a moment, is it, when you become a Christian to suddenly become all obnoxious to the people that you're in close contact with. They should actually gain some clear benefit from your Christianity. 
What is Peter's advice to wives with non-Christian husbands in um, 1 Peter 3? He says this, Submit yourselves to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. We had a lady in our church who became a Christian. And one of the most dramatic changes that happened to her is that she stopped being a critical person. She was a really nagging wife. Now, what an amazing witness to the gospel. Her husband and her children clearly gained some benefit to her Christianity. Are people getting a benefit from your Christianity? They should. They should be getting something from your Christianity. They should think, I'm so glad. They should be able to say, I don't like Christianity, but since they've become a Christian, they've been a lot nicer, a lot more generous, a lot more giving, a much better friend. Um, that's what our lives can be. They can be a recommendation for the Christian faith. Point number three, graciously listen to the people around you. Now, most people, not all, but most people aren't ready to be listened to, aren't ready to hear until they have been heard. So I would suggest that we listen to what people believe, ask them questions, and be fascinated about what they have to say about their own beliefs and understanding. It is really interesting. It should be interesting to us to listen to people's beliefs. Um, If it's not interesting to us, then something's wrong. And don't try and tear them down and be confrontational. Draw them out, show them respect. Now there are two scriptures in the epistles that describe particularly conversational conversation with people about Jesus. So you've got one in Colossians and you've got one in Peter. And these are some of the phrases they use. Do this with gentleness and respect and let your conversation always be full of grace. So clearly the tone is incredibly important if we're going to be true to obedient to the New Testament on this matter. It's not enough to just say things that are true of people. The tone is really important. And in both cases, the, the language is quite emphatic. You know, always, everyone, when you talk to any, anyone, at all times, be like this, be gracious, always get your tone right. Be gracious, be gentle, be respectful. So listen to people. And questions that I love asking are things like, do you have a faith at all? What do you think is the most important thing in life? What do you believe happens when we die? What do you think of the church? And I would say dignify even critical comments. So things that I tend to say back are, that's really interesting, or I think a lot of people feel like that, or maybe pull the thread and say, well, what experiences have led to you feeling that way? Simply listening causes people to reflect and can often start a journey towards a correct understanding of Jesus. So we've got a guy in our church called James, and someone witnessed to him, and he was quite a kind of debater, had a lot of doubts and questions and thoughts about Christianity. Um, He liked to discuss, and somebody said to him, look, what I want you to do is to write me a page of what, what you believe and why, and I will write a page of what I believe and why, and let's swap them. Now, simply that process caused him to conclude, before he even had the reply, that what he did believe didn't really have a basis and didn't really make sense. Because someone had given the dignity of actually the opportunity to to express and justify what he really believed. 
So this is an important foundation of evangelism, is actually listening to people. Point number four, offering prayer. Building really on our point about supporting the supporting work of signs and wonders, Jesus preached the gospel, but he healed the sick. They went side by side. He fed the hungry, and he delivered people from oppression. Healing and evangelism go together. Um, now, it's important to say that preaching and teaching was actually Jesus' primary ministry. That's what he says in Mark 1, verse 38. He says, that is why I have come. So he sees preaching the gospel as primary, and yet he, always, he often put um, signs and wonders beside it. Um, as something that should accompany. So in Mark 6, Mark 16, he says, preach the gospel and these signs will accompany those who believe. They will place their hands on people who are ill and they will get better. Um, And one of the common phrases that Jesus said to people, I think he says it at least on a couple of occasions, is what do you want me to do for you? Now, I think it was Angela Kim who talked about this, that she often says to people, what do you want Jesus to do for you? find that's a very powerful question to ask someone, to look them in the face and say, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Reminding them that it's, it's reminding them right straight off that this is Jesus who's going to intervene. And personally speaking, I've seen more success in prayer for healing with non-Christians than with Christians. And I was speaking with Adrian Holloway about this, and he said the same thing. I was speaking with another round just about this. He said the same thing. Um, why is that? We're not entirely sure, but one of the reasons of signs and wonders is that they're signs that attest to the truth of the gospel. So there's, there's, an, there's an eagerness on God's part to heal with this extra sort of demonstration motive. It's different than just healing a, a firmly convinced believer in the truth of the gospel. Um, and I would just say persevere. Don't worry about what people will think if God doesn't heal them. Don't think I'm going to destroy their faith if I pray for them and they don't get healed. It just doesn't really work like that. I've, you know, often people are just not used to a ministry experience of someone placing their hand on them and <laughs> praying for them to be healed. In the main, most people, even if they're not healed, are just touched in a powerful way by our identification and our concern and by the experience of being prayed for. But it's important to say things like this, not everyone gets healed, but some people do. And if God hasn't healed you, it never means that he doesn't love you or that he doesn't care. Point number five, share your stories. When people are ready to listen or they have questions, what sort of stuff should we talk about? And I would say, share how Jesus has helped you overcome an ordinary problem in your life. Um, your worries, your anxieties. How does the gospel help you with your anxieties and your worries? How does the gospel help you overcome a shattered relationship that just tore you apart? How did the gospel build you back up again and help you? And what, how is it your remedy? How, is, how did the gospel help you? I would say it doesn't have to be your story of becoming a Christian. And in general, that is a bit harder for people to relate to. When people hear your story of how you became a Christian, it's quite easy for them to listen to it and think, well, that's really nice for you, but that's never happened to me, so it's not really for me. Because often our stories just contain a few oddities or experiences that people don't relate to. But if you explain how your faith helps you with the ordinary problems of your life, not necessarily something even really dramatic, but how the gospel helps you, they they listen to that in a different way. And often people will think, well, I get worried. 
So maybe this is for me. Whereas when you share your story, it's actually quite hard. You have to be quite skilled to tell it in such a way that people think, that could be for me. So it's not complicated, but sharing your stories of how the gospel and Jesus relate and help you through the ordinary problems of your life. And uh, the who cares approach to mission kind of is like this. So we ask people the question, what hurts you the most? And then we respond to the top issues that come up on the cards. And there was one like um, mother and toddler group in a church in Norwich that, that did who cares. And they found out that the top issue in this parent group was that the, the, the thing that hurt the most was the guilt that the mums felt as parents, mother guilt. They just felt like they were failing their children and that hurt them the most. So they got in a really wise, mature Christian to come and share how her faith helps her deal with her mother guilt and how Jesus and the gospel relate to that. Two families joined the church as a result of that testimony. So it's very powerful when you present testimonies the right way in a way that people can access. Point number six, keep the focus on Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is called the gospel of Christ a number of times. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 2 and 9 and 10, Galatians 1, Philippians 1. The gospel repeatedly is called the gospel of Christ. That means that getting people to think about who is Jesus and what has Jesus done are really the centre of gravity if you're trying to have an evangelistic conversation. You want to be kind of putting people um, there. Um, Take people quickly to Jesus. There are so many dead-end conversations that you can have with people that really, in some ways, can be a bit of a distraction. Learn to take people to the person of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. So if someone says to you, how can I know that God exists? This is what I would say. Well, the ultimate evidence and proof that God exists is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. And he rose again to prove it. There we are, like we're straight in with the real question then is who is Jesus? Because he said he was God. Either he isn't God or he's God. If Jesus is God, then God exists. That's actually what Alpha does. That's why it starts on the question, who is Jesus? Because it it answers indirectly the question, is there a God? Um, If someone asks you about creation and evolution, well, I would say, well, actually the evidence that Christianity offers us is not scientific evidence, it's historical evidence, more like the kind of evidence that you would put before a jury. And the evidence all points towards this claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So if you want to know whether or not Christianity is true, we, it's not decided on how God created the world. It's decided on the question of who is Jesus Christ. That's the evidence that the Bible provides. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't, does it? The Bible doesn't provide us with scientific evidence. Um, so why do we go there? Let's go to the evidence that it does provide. Um, what about morality? If people say, I don't like what Christians say about this subject, homosexuality or transgender or whatever moral issue is the one that people find bothers them. It's usually, it's usually those sorts of issues, isn't it? This is what I would say. It's a bit of a Tim Keller answer. Every culture finds some parts of Christianity attractive and other parts repellent. And I might give the example of how in, in a Muslim culture, what they would find attractive about Christian ethics is very different to what people find unattractive. Attractive in, in a Western country like ours, um, 
but so then I would say, well, so really the first question is not do I like what Christian morals are? The ultimate question is who is Jesus? Because if, you know, in a way, who cares what the Bible says about morality if Jesus isn't the Son of God? That's the question that we have to know the answer to. That's the question that we've got to figure out first. Don't dismiss Christianity just because you don't like the morality. Every system will have some things that you like and some things that you don't. You've got to consider who Jesus is. That's the basis of Christianity. And then suffering is a very common one. I mean, I think this one's probably, you can get quite, quite profound when you're talking about the issue of suffering with people. And someone says, how can there be a God of love with all the suffering? This is what I would say. The ultimate response that Christianity offers to the problem of suffering is not an argument but a person. Christianity says that God has lived among us and that he suffered with us on the cross. So in a way, Christianity gives us the answer that we need rather than the answer that we want. It doesn't tell us the answer, why me? Why has this happened to me? But it does prove beyond all question that no matter what you're going through, the God still loves you. Just look at the cross where Jesus died. Someone might ask you, is Christianity really relevant to my life? And, or just act like it's kind of a completely irrelevant and totally unimportant and Christianity is just weird and lame. And this is something that I say to young people, sometimes say to young people, and it often makes them think because they don't know this. So I'll ask them, what year were you born in? And they'll say, oh, I was born in 1999, 2005, whatever. And I'll say, okay, so that's 2005 years from what? And a lot of people actually don't know. I say, well, do you know that that's, it's, you, you're, the date of your birth is set against the coming of Jesus Christ into the world? And they'll go, oh. So did you realize then that over half of the world's population set our dates by this person, Jesus Christ? Don't you think that the person that we, when, whenever you're referencing a day you're talking about is someone worth figuring out who they are, figuring out whether they're important or not. And often that's, it's, it's surprising that uh, saying something basic because that impacts people, but it does. Um, my point number seven is this, invite the people around you without fear. Do you know that it's, invite, it's polite to invite people to things? It's friendly. It's not our place to assume that people don't want to be invited. If someone says, I don't want to come to any activities in your church, then that's fine. I think you've got a free pass to not invite them. But until they actually say that to you, I say, carry on. And I've had a number of examples that have kind of proved this point to me. So when I was at university, I had somebody in my halls called James, and he came into my room. I had a lot of Christian books, and he looked really awkward. And he tried to ask me about them, and then looked really embarrassed. And it was a very cringy, awkward conversation about Christianity. And I, and I thought, well, I'm going to be really evangelistically sensitive here. Clearly, James does not feel comfortable talking about Christianity. So I'm not going to bring it up, and I'm not going to invite him to stuff. So whenever the Christian Union did an event that was for, the, for everyone, I would invite everyone in my hall except James, because I thought that would be really sensitive and, and thoughtful of me. Two years later, he became a Christian through someone else. And I sat down with him. And he said to me, Rob, I felt really left out all those times that you invited other people to those events, and not me, everyone else except me. Well, you think I've learned from that, but I've had other experiences too that have reminded me that we shouldn't write people off 
but you don't know what's going on inside, and sometimes your impression of how it went is not the same as the other person's. So when I first started leading the church, I knocked on the doors of quite a lot of houses in my town, and I just said to people, look, this is who I am, I've started leading this church, we're just letting you know that we're here, and we're available. And when I knocked on one door, a lady called Angela, she burst into tears, and she invited me in, and she explained that two weeks ago her husband had died, and she was absolutely devastated. I prayed with her, I shared the gospel with her. We actually arranged for someone to come and do some practical jobs that her husband used to do to help her. And I left her with some sort of information about Jesus to read. And after that happened, like a little while later, I suddenly thought, oh Rob, what were you thinking? That was too much too soon. You took advantage of a poor, vulnerable woman who just lost her husband. What were, you, what were you doing? You shouldn't have just gone in there like with the gospel and told her about Jesus Christ. And I started to feel like I'd been too much too soon and it was bad. And I, and I kind of was nursing this sense of almost embarrassment about what I'd said and how bold that I'd been. And then three years later, she turned up at one of our Alpha events. And I said, Angela, why are you here? She looked puzzled and she says, because of you. I'll never forget that day that you came round and you prayed with me and you told me about Alpha and I wasn't ready then to come but I'd never forgotten what you said and now I feel I'm ready so I'm here. Don't write people off. Invite the people around you without fear. Okay, let's just finish with five opportunities of the modern age. These aren't really biblical things, they're just observations that I have made. Number one, there remains interest, mystery, attraction to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, there, there still is this kind of interest about Jesus. I think also what I mean here is that people may have a negative impression of the church. They may have had a negative experience of the church. But there remains something about Jesus that's different. Um, there's something attractive, maybe something intriguing, something mysterious to them about the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of mud that's thrown at the church and quite a lot of it sticks. But there's not a lot of mud that's been thrown at Jesus Christ that really sticks, that people can really hold on to and say, he was so terrible when. You don't meet many people who are antagonistic towards the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, that's obviously a, a, a great help in evangelism, that we can start there that we can take them to the person of Jesus quickly. Secondly, the attractive nature of gospel community. Churches have been demonstrated to be the most diverse social setting in the UK, tied in first place with football stadiums. It amazes me how many people who join our church from non-Christian background are stunned by the relational warmth, even when I think, to be honest, it's fairly mediocre. Because what they're used to is quite different than what I'm used to. And realistically, a lot of people aren't used to being in environments where people even really listen to them. That's like a new experience for them. They come to church and meet people who just ask them lots of questions and listen, and they think, wow, I've never sh- no one's ever shown so much concern of <laughs> me. I mean, you, you see this, like people who, t- they're used to people just talking past each other. But one person says one thing, another person says, oh yeah, that was like me. But then no one's pulling the thread. 
But in churches, there's usually a significant number of people, I wish there were more, who actually listen to people when they say something, rather than going, oh yeah, that happened to me once, actually pull the thread a bit more and say, oh right, tell me a bit more about that. Why did you do that? Like, keep pulling, keep asking, show interest. That's so unusual for people. And someone filled in an alpha feedback form recently that came to our church and said, I came for the talks, but I stayed for the people. There was some, they weren't actually at that point massively drawn to the content. They were drawn to the community that the gospel brings. Um, and that's why Alpha and, mod- and mod- evangelism models like it work so well, is because they provide a context for people to experience Christian community. Third observation, of uh, third opportunity, there is a willingness to explore the Bible one-to-one. There has been a surprising renaissance of one-to-one Bible studies in recent years. People do, this kind of makes sense, because people do not easily trust institutions, and so they can be more reluctant to attend events, but they're surprisingly open to you as a person, and to the offer, would you like to study the Bible with me? Now, when I read about this trend, I thought, well, let's try it out in our church. So I got three people, I was one of them, and I said, we're going to offer to do one-to-one evangelistic Bible studies with non-Christians that we know. So we asked seven people, would you like to study the Bible with me? Do you know how many people said yes? Seven. That's an 100% success rate of asking people to do one-to-one Bible studies. People, point number, um, opportunity number four, people are less, oh, just to go back to that one, actually, um, like, there's something, sometimes just doing a one-to-one Bible study with somebody can get them to a place where they actually would want to come to something like an Alpha, or they want to come to your church. It can often work as either quite a good supporting thing to do to just move someone a bit closer to Jesus, or it can be like a very good first step before they're ready for that. Because they like you, that's why you hang out with them, and so they have got interesting questions. So there are some great resources for this, and there's the two like UCCF resources called Uncover Luke and Uncover John, which I've used and I really like doing with people. There's a Bible study called The World We All Want by someone called Tim Chester, which gives like an overview of the whole Bible. Um, we're doing that with a group of non-Christian guys, combining it with beer every Sunday night at the moment, and that's really good. Um, so I'd, rec- I'd recommend those resources, but there's, there's stacks of stuff out there. There's, there's loads of one-to-one evangelistic Bible studies. Point number four, people are less equipped to deal with suffering, and Christianity offers unique resources. This is one of the opportunities that we have. People in this modern age are far more easily shattered by grief and suffering. So if you, I mean, I studied history. If you read, like, old diaries, like, there's a resilience in people that you read and you think, wow, that's unusual. And then you have a conversation with just, like, the average person who's going through a hard time. And there's not the same resilience. People, you know, have, are just not as resilient anymore in the way they handle grief. It just shatters them. If you think about infant mortality rates 100 years ago, the things that people experienced were far worse than what people currently experience, and yet people are more, more unable to deal with it, because Western secularism doesn't really offer you anything. Um, Christianity has unique resources to help people. It has a huge amount to say, and the Bible really does, on the subject of suffering. It's absolutely immense. I really like Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Suffering, which just covers it in such comprehensive detail. Um, and uh, Don Parsons' book, How Long, is very good. Um, 
What's unique about Christianity is that we, one of the, the big things that's different between Christianity and Western secularism, which we're fed all the time, but what's different is that Christianity offers people a hope that suffering can't take away. Western secularism, kind of, people have hope, but their hope is in something that could just go be taken from them tomorrow. But we have hope of something beyond. It's not all about this life for us. And, you know, this is why we found Who Cares has been a really useful evangelistic model, because people are intrigued about what Jesus has to say about the issues in life that hurt them the most. But then the intrigue level is going to be high for that. You know, if if your problem is that you are absolutely shattered by a broken relationship. And I say, look, Jesus has actually got some really different and unusual things to say about that issue. That person's intrigue level is going to be very high in what you're saying. So that's opportunity number four. And then finally, opportunity number five, um, there are less de-churched people. Most people don't have a negative experience of church that has given them a wrong impression of the gospel. They have no experience of church. They might have the wrong impression of church, but that is easier to deal with than a wrong experience of church. Because all they need to do is meet you, who is actually a real Christian, not what they've read on Facebook or seen online or seen in the news. And immediately, what culture's been telling them and you don't match up. And so immediately, their impression of Christianity is kind of open. Hmm. You're not like they say. And people distrust the media anyway, so it's not that hard to move people from a negative impression of Christianity. It's harder to help someone overcome negative experience of church. And Sandy Miller describes it like this. It's like skiing on fresh snow. When you're explaining the gospel, I mean, I love doing like evangelism with young people who just have no experience of church. And, I mean, these three girls that I was talking to last week with my friend Sue, um, it was amazing really that, I mean, the one Christian they knew was a really, there was one Christian that they knew in their year, and she was a lovely, radiant Christian person. And they said, yeah, she's really nice. So that, that, that's all they knew on the ground, was that there was one Christian in their year, and she was a lovely, very generous person. And they'd met her parents, and they were really nice Christian people. So that already just moves people to think, what I'm being told and what I see on the ground is very different. So it works well for us. So those are just five opportunities of what I've observed. There are more on all of these points, but I'm just going to give you an opportunity to ask two questions at the four o'clock. And I won't give very long answers. And then I've got a question. In which case we will finish and I will pray. Father God, we thank you for this glorious gospel that you have entrusted to us. What what an amazing message. What life, what hope, what peace. Father, fill us with the Spirit. Make us courageous and bold. Make us clear, God. Give us a renewed clarity in explaining who you are and what you've done. And Father, we just want to pray that all the seeds that have been sown at this conference and in today's session would bear great fruit. Lord, we, we, we multiply what we're offering you today. And may many people come to know you as a result. In Jesus' name. Amen.